for joining us today, Chris Chris Simon. Yes, I'm really happy. I'm excited to come up to Boise. Yeah, so you're you'll be here uh, for this the I think this is the Boise debut of this film, right? Yes, it is. And and the full title, This Ain't No Mouse Music. That's right. <laughs> I, I I love it. I don't know what it means. What does it mean? <laughs> well, it means um, mouse music is the way that the um, focus of the film, Chris Strachwitz, who started Ahuli Records, that's how he describes music that isn't authentic, that doesn't come from a community, and you know that he doesn't like also. <laughs> yeah. Basic to it, and he's a very opinionated man. I I, I like that doesn't come from a community. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a cool definition. And I think that community certainly is the the core of the kinds of things that, uh, that that Chris pulled together. That's right. I mean, one of his major focuses was Cajun music. Yeah. And, I mean, not only, I mean, does that come directly from a community that's still thriving, um, but, you know, he is really a part of it. He's very close to the Savoie family who are accordionists. I mean, mm-hmm. Pine Leaf Boys are one of the groups that's evolved out of that family, and... Beausoleil is another, I mean, not from the family, but, um, so he's really right there in the center. Yeah, I think, I think that was my, I was trying to think of my introduction to our Hulu records, and I think it was following Beausoleil's back catalog, uh, and I, th- well, I think it's one of those things where I followed Beausoleil's back catalog to our Hulu, and I followed Flaco Jimenez's back catalog to our Hulu, and I was looking at Elizabeth Cotton, our Hooli, you know, and just every, uh, there were just all these things, even before I really knew about our Hooli records, all the music I was listening to as I kept going into the back catalog, our Hooli was, was the beginning of so many of those, those bands and artists that I loved. And I think that, you know, our Hooli is the record company that more than any other, I mean, brought that music out to the greater world. There were always recordings within a community, but like I mean, Flacco says in the film, that if it hadn't been for Chris, he would never have gone into the rock and roll. He would never met Ray Cooter and all those other people that he's recorded with. Um, and that was thrilling for him. So, you know, and us all, really, but, yeah. you know, it was a big step forward for him and that type of music. That's just one example. Yeah. What, what was your introduction did you uh, come in through the recordings or through the record store did you meet chris himself or well i um i was married to les blank who was les's i mean was chris's film partner on tulis fronteras and jateo ball and so i met chris on a personal level but of mm-hmm. course before then i had known of our huli records for many many years and listened to them you know like with most people not necessarily conscious of the label Right, but, but have heard that music since I was a kid. So, um, you know, meeting, I can remember sitting around having dinner with Les and Chris Strockwitz and Libba Cotton and Rose Maddox, and, you know, it just was an <laughs> endless, thrilling dinner. Yeah, wow. It happened once a week at least. To be able to, to surround yourself with people like that. And, you know, and, and the fascinating thing, which I hadn't realized until I was doing some some research here, is that Christakowicz is not American. He's he's German. He uh, yeah, he grew up in Germany. <laughs> and, and I th- I think that's a fascinating way to, you know, because the you know the 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 Tex Mex, the even the Cajun sounds, you know, even even for us Idahoans, the blues sounds, you know, those those seem natural, right. right? So so when I was listening to this music. You know, even even as a uh, as a teenager, 
and, and into my 20s, you know, it all felt organic and natural to me. When you come from, from, from Europe, that, I would think this, that it's much more intentional than the way I came into this music. I think so. And of course, you know, he came right after the war. So I think he came in 47, around then. And at that point, nobody would have known about these musics outside of the community, except for like blues and maybe mariachi. And, you know, there were exceptions, of course, but certainly Cajun, nobody knew about it. And, um, you know, he said, he described, this not in the film, but he described to us about how he was, you know, he came to this strange country, he didn't speak the language, he he was trying to learn it, so he was listening to border radio to try to learn it. Oh, yeah. And that's where he got introduced to all these music, something he had never even imagined growing up. I mean, he was young. He was 16 when he came. So, it, I mean, it literally changed his life. Hey, first of all, let's talk about the power of radio. Yeah. Because, because here I am at a community radio station, still believing that there is power in radio, and thinking about, here's a, yeah, here's a, a, a new immigrant from Germany whose who's, uh, outlet for learning about American culture is border radio. That's a fascinating story in and of itself right there. Yes, it is. And, um, I mean, incredibly rich. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one. I mean, not to mention all the Americans that learned about incredible different types of music. I mean, you know, everybody else was listening to Doris Day and how much is that doggy in the window? You know, just... To, put it in perspective and so he was a real weirdo <laughs> right right when you have uh, bing crosby dominating the the radio and and people like that well, wonderful music but it certainly is not anything resembling uh, tex-mex or hawaiian steel guitar or or the the blues masters no and you know there were other people certainly there were lots of other people you know researching different types of american music but most of it was for archives, like Alan Lomax was down the recording before right. Chris ever got there. But he was putting it in an archive. It wasn't getting released. And Arhuli was, and uh, Harry Smith, I think, also released a bunch of music. Um, but, you know, Chris was going down there recording the music live with one microphone, which he still does, and um, not everything. And he was releasing it to the American public. So it was really going out there. And that's why people like Beausoleil will credit him with helping them learn their own roots. Yeah. You know, Michael Doucet says, you know, when I when he grew up, nobody spoke Cajun French. They've revived it now, but it really, there were very few people that spoke it. And the music was considered low class, and, you know, that has been transformed. When you probably had at that time the Balfour Brothers and not, not a whole lot else of, of anything that anybody outside of southern Louisiana might have even heard of. Right. right, and the Balfour Brothers, were. they came up, I think Harry Smith brought them up to the um, Newport Folk Festival, and so they were, or maybe Chris did, I don't really remember, but anyway, they got up there somehow, and that was a huge breakthrough, not just for you know the greater America, but also when the Balfours went back to their Louisiana, they had a totally different perspective on their music. I, uh, I also uh, was not familiar with the... Uh the story of uh, Country Joe and and that uh, the living room recording that that uh, where where Chris was able to uh, actually make a little bit of money and and get the the record store started. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I, I, you know, we played a little bit within the film. I mean, Country Joe and Chris are actually friends, and they've long reconciled any differences. But you know, Chris, because he recorded it, the way things work is 
if you're the first person to record, you considered like one of the authors, of course, and mm-hmm. he would be, so Chris would be collecting the money for Joe, and then they'd split it 50-50. Um, and yeah, when it went on Woodstock, boy, Chris bought a record store. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the record store itself like? I've never had a chance to, to visit there. Oh, well, it's still open, and um, it's in El Cerrito, California, which is next to Berkeley. It's, you walk in, and it is a musical wonderland. I mean, you see old posters from ancient concerts, and everyone from, you know, Mance Lipson to the Grateful Dead, or Mance Lipson playing with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Those type of things are on the wall, and invariably the staff will be playing some obscure type of music that you've never heard of. <laughs> And, you know, it's an incredible place to be introduced. And then you also run into, I can remember running into people like B.B. King with a stack of records two feet high, or Dave Alvin, or those guys from Texas with the big beards. Who are <laughs> Anyway, you know, rock stars everywhere coming to get the music in the most down-home place they could. I, I know I've, uh, uh, Bob Dylan has talked about the influence of, of the Arhuli records as well as the, the Harry Smith anthology and, uh, mm-hmm. but, and so many, so many people go back to those roots. Well, and then, uh, there's, there's the Rolling Stones, Fred McDowell story because oh, yeah. they recorded the Fred McDowell song on, on Sticky Finger that, uh, that Chris was able to, to help Fred get royalties from that the label was, I, I gather, was not willing to give up originally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was partly that they didn't, you know, they didn't realize that someone had actually written. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so, but that all came out, and we had hoped to interview one of the Stones, but we just couldn't manage to get in touch with them. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I'm I'm assuming as far as uh, uh, people who, who actually were recorded by our Hooli, that that was a pretty open community and pretty easy to uh, to find people who are willing to, to talk about their Arhuli experiences. Is that true? Um, yeah, it, it was. I mean, and it also was helped because Maureen Gosling, who is my co-director and co-producer, you know, both of us had known Chris for many, many, many years, and so we were already part of that community, and we knew who were the most important people, and we knew them in general, um, so we had pretty easy access. Very fortunate. I think. And, you know, folks, I, I know Chris felt more comfortable with us. And I think, you know, when you're interviewing like Savoise, who played at my wedding, et cetera, you know, that helps. <laughs> Since this was not an expose. I mean, if it had been an expose, maybe it wouldn't have been so helpful. It, and, uh, well, just, I, I, won't, I won't paraphrase your goal. What, what was your goal in putting this film together? Well, the real goal is to take people on a. Um, a trip through American roots music with Mr. Chris's guide. Um, you know, it's pretty foot stamping. It's it's a happy film. It's not a you know depressing documentary. It's a you'll go out there once you see it bouncing and happy. Um, that's what we wanted to show. We we really we wanted to show the joy of the music, celebrate the music, and also Chris. Yeah, and I know I know this is an overgeneralization, but a lot of these. A lot of these regional musics are, are built for community celebrations. That's where you heard them. You heard them in dance halls, and you heard them at uh, places where the community is coming together to celebrate, whether it's just the fact that it's Saturday night or it's, or it's something bigger. Um, uh, that, there's, that was where the music was being kept alive for, for so many years, was just the live, small local dance halls, right? That's absolutely right. 
And that, of course, was the best place to see them and record them. Um, or, you know, on somebody's back porch, that worked too. But I think the, the music that Chris was most interested in is music, like you said, that's community celebrations, even if it's just Saturday night, where you get together. And that is a huge part of where the music comes from. And I think that's another thing the film wants to convey, that it actually mm-hmm. comes from someplace. Not just, even though there might be, you know, one author of a song, it's coming out of a whole tradition, a whole group of people. And um, for me, as a folklorist, that's thrilling. Yeah. I, you know, I think about, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day about, you know, Cluck Old Hen, or you know, a song like uh-huh. that that has so many, so many different verses you can choose from and, and two or three different major tunes you can choose from, and, and you hear all the variations of that that have been uh, recorded and performed over the years and see how that, I mean, you can almost take a song like that and do a study of, of American roots music to see how that, that changes regionally and because uh, it's, it's a song that everybody knows but nobody right. does it the same way and so being able to 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 draw some of that out in a non-academic way right yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> it's been done academically yeah i mean it's interesting you use that um that example because i was just i'm making a film on dutch hop music of colorado and um, wyoming and nebraska which is a type of polka music and they also do a version of Cluck Old Hen. You know, so that's exactly the type of music that spreads everywhere. I've, I've heard mm-hmm. some of the Cajun songs that, you know, translated into English and done as a polka when we were doing the Polish-American polka film. So, <laughs> you know, it gets around. A good song is a good song. And plus, you know, if you're listening to that song and you want to make up your own verse, go for it. You know, it's, it's, I think there's a freedom in that folk music yeah and then and then uh, when you bring the community spirit in when you're when you're doing that with an audience mm-hmm. and, and getting their reactions and seeing does does this work uh do do people respond to this is nobody paying attention uh, i think that there's just that that live performance particularly when people are dancing or uh, you know it's not it's not a concert setting but people are using the music as as part of something bigger and when you could experiment with that on stage and, and see what, what works for people and what doesn't and, and build that into your version, your artistic version of that mm-hmm. song, I, there, there's something really powerful in that. I think so, too. And, I mean, I also think live music is where it's at. You just, um, because of the audience interaction, you know, I'm not a musician, but what I observe is that, you know, the audience is an extremely important part of music. And so I love that when Chris has live recordings, a lot of times you hear the audience in there or you hear the baby in the background. Mm-hmm. You know, those type of things are what bring it alive rather than just a performance. Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with performance. It's just, you know, it adds an extra dimension. Yeah. Well, and I think even more so these days, musicians are making recordings so that people know about them so that when they play live, people will come see them. Mm-hmm. That's and right. the and the recording becomes it becomes the thing that entices you. Mm-hmm. So oh, I've heard a I've heard a Beausoleil recording. So now when they're playing on the Grove in downtown Boise, I'm going to make sure I go see them because I've I've heard the records, but now I want to go see them and hear them and dance to them. Exactly, and that will be even more fun than listening to them on the radio or in your living room. Yeah, 
And that's a true statement with Beausoleil, for sure, because I danced to Beausoleil on the Grove <laughs> in downtown Boise, and it is it is better oh, yeah. than putting your headphones on all alone in your in your studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different experience. <laughs> it is. Were there uh, so so you had you 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 had the chance to be exposed uh, to, to Chris and to so many of these musicians uh, in person. But were, is there anything in the catalog that that uh, as you were digging in deeper, anything that surprised you or a, a, a regional style of music that you were uh, uh, didn't realize had had been uh, recorded by Chris? Well, one that uh, did surprise me is I had somehow missed that he's the first person that recorded Del McCurry, who's one of the great. Bluegrass musicians <laughs> of our day. I, you know, I didn't know that. That's yeah. news to me right there. I was going, huh, really? Uh, and I should have figured it out, but, you know, can't think of everything. Can't listen yeah. to everything. <laughs> that was um, one of the big ones. I mean, but he has some pretty eclectic things. It's uh, Mountain Music of Peru that John Cohen recorded and was put out through. It was very radical music, so um, it... No, no other label would touch it. And Chris put it out. Um, you know the story of Country Joe and the fish. Yeah, being the first person to basically record them. I mean, it's, it's just pretty wild things. I, Laotian, some kind of Laotian music. <laughs> yeah, and I and I hadn't realized uh, that he did the first recordings of the Rebirth Brass Band. Oh yeah, that's right. He did, and they've really gone on. They've done all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and we have them in our film, too. Um, but of course, it always changes personnel, but they're there. Oh, I mean, there's many more, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm having, I think I'm overwhelmed by that question. Yeah, well, that was, you know, just looking at, you know, I, I, I certainly associate blues and, and Cajun and, and Tex-Mex, but just looking through the list of, uh, as I was, you know, digging in even more, um, you know, and not realizing he he uh, had worked with uh, Clifton Chonier and um, you know so so many others that some of them I knew, but so many I just I just didn't. But it and yet none of it surprises me. <laughs> there's still there's still uh, um, he had there's a there's a world that he has worked in that the the that has a sound to it, mm-hmm. and so even when it's a different sound, it's still it's still feels like an Arhuli sound. True. I think the the, the um, group that we did not have include in the film, and it was sad, was, you know, at the time, Chris was very passionate about uh, sacred steel music, mm-hmm. which is a religious music out of, I don't know, God, I don't know, Pentecostal-type black churches that involves a um, steel guitar. And now we're beginning to hear it. I mean, I know there was a blues guy over here in Salt Lake who... That's where he, what he grew up with, and that's what he's playing the blues with now. So, I mean, that music is evolving, too. But there was just not room to put everybody in this movie, unfortunately. So we left out one of the big traditions, sadly. Yeah, and I, and I, I know my introduction to Sacred Steel was through uh, an Arhuli compilation of one sort or other, because uh, it was not something, something I'd heard about, but not something I had found and it and it was it was Chris and Arhuli who introduced me to to the actual sounds and it's it's fantastic music. It is incredible music and and um, you know I went down to a little storefront church in Oakland with Chris to hear somebody who was there and it is amazing to see in the church and how powerful it is and how I mean it was kind of like um, Santeria drumming 
You know, it really mm-hmm. brings you into a religious experience. And again, we're back to the community-based because that music mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense in the context of a worship service than it does in a, in a concert hall. Exactly, it does. Although it works in a concert hall, too, surprisingly well. And usually when I've seen the guys do concert performance, they, they make sure to get in a little something about God, like <laughs> who here is Christian, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty funny. Or who would like to become? Anyone want to? <laughs> we can just come on right down the aisle. We'll, yeah, come we'll, on right down now. We'll, we'll take care of you right now. <laughs> I didn't see any takers, but there were certainly some Berkeley hippies who looked like they were in ecstasy. <laughs> It, so, it, 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 is, there, is there anything that that uh, that Chris hasn't had a chance to explore that that he's he's wanted to? Oh, I think he wanted to um, explore more Hawaiian music. Mm-hmm. I think most of what he has in his label are are reissues or older, and um, yeah, he's he's been very impressed with the younger Hawaiian revival. I mean, it's not revival, but um, Renaissance musicians that have combined a whole lot of... I mean, as, as always, I mean, what interests him is if it's powerful within the community. And, you know, Hawaiian music is really happening. So, but I don't think he's going to be doing that. He's, you know, I think he's... I don't know if you know, but he has sold our Huli records to the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, so he's busy with that, and although he's still going to be issuing recordings from his backlog and things that he recorded years ago, or, or anyone that excites him. Um, you, you, you know, Smithsonian will have our Huli. Folkways will have our Huli, and it'll be in perpetual uh, distribution. So that's wonderful news. You can just order it up and get it. Yeah, that, that just seems, and it just seems like the right pairing, doesn't it? It just seems natural. Absolutely. I mean, the Smithsonian has done a great job with Mo Ash's collection. Mm-hmm. And I have full and utter confidence that they will treat our Hule like the treasure it is. Yeah, I think the uh, of anybody, I think the Smithsonian's going to—they understand what they have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And I think, you know, and then uh, and then bring Chris up these days to not worry about distribution and not worry about having catalogs and websites and all that stuff, and just and just being able to focus on. What, whatever music he wants to focus on, whatever he wants to do at the store. That sounds like a pretty nice retirement, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a win-win-win for everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next chapter. Yeah. So you've, and you've talked about a few other, other projects you have uh, that you've done recently and have going on. What, uh, what's what's on, your, on your agenda? What are you working on now and kind of what's in the, in the future for, for you and your filmmaking? Well, I'm continuing on, although it certainly gets harder to get money. <laughs> Maureen and I, I think that took us eight years to get the funds together for the Arhuli film, which to me would have been obvious, easy to do. <laughs> and then, um, But I'm doing a film on Dutch hop polka, which is a really specific type of polka music that's done by the Germans from Russia, who ha- are actually the second largest population group in Colorado, for instance, there along the Platte River Valley. Um, and it's a, a type of music that features the, dul- the hammered dulcimer. And I'd say 99.9% of Americans have definitely not heard of it. <laughs> no, because when we think of polkas, we, you know, we, we think of the Midwest and we think of the, yeah. it's certainly, certainly German polka, but, or, or, or the German that's been translated through the Tex-Mex those polka, you know, the Los Tex Maniacs, Flaco Jimenez, Texas oh, yeah. Tornado. We think about that, and then we think about, well, unfortunately, we think about Lawrence Welk. But I mean, that's the that's the polka we think of, and and I, I you know, I've heard some some Montana ethnic polka music, mm-hmm. but 
Uh, this is, I think this is a whole different world that I'm not, I have never, Dutch hop is a new word for me. <laughs> well, stay tuned. It's about, the, it's going to sweep America soon. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it, so that's one. I'm doing a film on a cowboy singer named Mike Beck. Oh, I love Mike Beck. Oh, good. Yeah. Don't tell me that the West is done and gone. So I'm just starting that, and um, I have a couple other projects. Well, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'm definitely interested. I, 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 I've, uh, Met Mike Beck a few times and, and talked to him some, and um, both about his music and about his horse training. So he's mm-hmm. a fascinating, fascinating guy. Yeah, I mean, and a great storyteller as well as a wonderful musician and songwriter. I mean, and he he writes from you know it's as authentic as it gets. Yeah, most cowboy singers aren't necessarily cowboys, and Mike is, and that's where his music comes from. Yeah, and also the Grateful Dead and the Eagles and. <laughs> Right. Well, those, those, that, that all, that sounds like uh, an interesting, an interesting body of work to be underway with. So that's, that sounds fascinating as well. Yes. Well, they're very different. <laughs> yeah. So you'll be here in, in Boise, uh, just, just Saturday. When, when, how, how long are you here and what, what events are going on? Let's at least, uh, mention all that. Okay. Well, um, I'm here coming in on Saturday to show This Ain't No Mouse Music and coming for a benefit for the World Village um, Festival. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be this Saturday night, June 4th at 7 p.m. And I guess this is a relatively new festival. Yeah, um, I think just the second year, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think the festival itself is, you know, a week later or so. Yeah. But, I, I mean, so this is Saturday night, and I think it's going to be a real blast. And there's... We allow dancing. If people feel like they need to dance during the film, go for it. <laughs> and uh, and is this a, is there a tie-in with the Idaho Commission on the Arts? Um, yes, there is. Steve Hatcher, who's the um, Idaho State folklorist, is the one that basically arranged this. He's a friend of mine. I'm a folklorist too, by the way. So um, that's the connection. Yeah, I met I met Stephen in Elko. At one oh. of the cowboy poetry gatherings, that's where I first met him. Oh yeah, he was the archivist, and um, mm-hmm. I work I work that almost every year too. Wonderful event. You betcha. Uh, I um well we can we could talk about that for hours too, but we don't need to. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know how you know Mike Beck. <laughs> yeah, I'm I met him uh, at the. I'm sure he was playing at the. What is it, the sleeping dog? A stray dog. Stray yeah. dog, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's where <laughs> I first saw him. And then I have, I've seen him a few times, and he's done a couple of house concerts here in Boise. And But, yeah, it was through through Elko where I first met him. Yeah, I, well, I, am, I, I went down and I filmed him recently at the Cowboy Music Gathering in um, Genoa, and it was great. He's so much fun to hang out with, so... I'm going to go film the band, the whole band, um, in July. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah. I got a chance to uh, to interview Don Edwards a couple of years ago, and man, he knows he knows a thing or two I'll about say. about <laughs> cowboy music and folklore, and yeah, he had some stories. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> you should look out for Andy Hedges if you ever get a chance to. He's he's a young up and coming singer. I I have heard I have heard Andy's music, but I have not met him yet. Oh, he's just delight, very self-effacing, quiet, and but knows knows it all. Yeah, he's kind of the heir apparent, I think. In fact, Rambling Jack said that. 
about Andy. Well, if Ramblin' Jack says it, it's true. Well, obviously. <laughs> Well, th- this has been uh, absolutely wonderful. I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the film, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm really excited that uh, we have a chance to to bring this to Boise to a, to a bigger audience, to a bigger screen, and uh, I'm I'm excited that this is uh, that this is going on, and it's been just fantastic to to talk to you about uh, about the film and, and your experiences. Well, I really enjoyed it too, and I will hope to see you there on Saturday. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you.